Hi, everyone, and welcome to the In the Shoes of podcast, where I make it my goal to see life as much as possible from someone else's point of view. Just like we all have a unique heartbeat, every single one of us sees life only from our own perspectives. Think about it. Can you see and process life exactly as Elon Musk sees and processes life? The answer is you can't, and it applies to every living conscious being here on this pale blue dot. So for the listeners out there, I am so pleased to have Jody Guerrero on the line with me. And thank you, Jody, for agreeing no to be on the show. Uh, you have an mm. awesome journey that you've been through. Yeah. And I can't wait to hear all about it. And I, I want to, but I want to let that mm. happen naturally. And I want to ask you how you define yourself to the outside world. Yeah. So, um, I'm a 46-year-old mum uh, or mom, whatever you want to say it as in the US, um, <laughs> you, you know, with um, two teenage girls who have special needs uh, and my husband's actually from San Francisco. I'm an, I'm an Aussie, as you can hear from my accent. Uh, we live in Brisbane, Australia, and, um, yeah, I would, I'm what you would call probably a consumer health advocate and, that's someone who helps other patients deal with their health and chronic illness uh, journey. So there are quite a few health advocates in the United States. There are very few of them here in Australia. Uh, some of them um, do it as a voluntary, voluntary type of thing where they um, go on committees and do all sorts of things to change health policy. And some people do it also for patients to assist them through their own difficulties, whether that be a, an awful nightmare or something they're just finding hard to cope with. Um, and often uh, what I find is that when you go in to have treatment in the hospital, and I'm always in the hospital for something or other, um, when you sit down mm. and have your treatment, you often find yourself talking to patients around you, people who are going through a similar thing. And sometimes you actually find some really good tips from other patients that you don't find through your doctor. And uh, some of these tips have led me to find medications and different things uh, along the journey that have helped me enormously. Um, and so I wanted to take my lemons and turn them into lemonade. I'm sure many people have heard that saying before. I just wanted to make sure, sure. Yeah. I used what has been awful and turned it into something really good because what's the use in sitting around worrying about things when someone else could use that information, someone else can use that experience as an inspiration for them. Um, and right. I just think that I guess it depends on the type of person you are. If you're a, a person who sees the world like a, a glass half full or a glass half empty, you know, I'm the type of person that sees everything in a positive light, even when it's not positive, <laughs> or I try to. Anyway. Yeah. So, right. um, and you try to help others in the meantime. Yeah, so too, like right? um, I come into contact with people uh, through my website, through social media and through just when I go to the hospital, um, some people, um, you know, really struggle with, particularly communication with their GP, their um, primary care physician, 
or they're specialists, they have difficulty getting across to their doctors what they really want and they often find it hard to understand health literacy or medical speak Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes when we go into a doctor's office we feel like, okay, they're the authority, they know everything about my body and they're talking in these words that I have no idea what they're saying uh, and... I'm trying to get through to them, this is what I want, but I don't want to challenge them because it's their office. So, you know, some people have a great deal of difficulty challenging the doctor in front of them. They feel like, well, I can't say anything to them. I've got to be careful that I don't tick them off, you know. Um, and then, Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It, it might why, be, why do you think that it is? It might be um, certain people are very shy, uh, you know, when they're talking to people, they don't like to um say it depends on the generation as well like my parents are very uh careful not to rock the boat if you know what i mean they don't like to complain about anything they don't even like taking anything back to the supermarket if there's something wrong with it if you know what i mean um yeah i know that's really an older generation and i think that's probably because when my parents were growing up their you know second world war type of era and you know you just we're happy with what you got, you know, um, and mm-hmm. complaining about things or standing up and saying something like, I don't agree with you. is not in their psyche at all. Um, but for us younger people, um, when, and particularly, you know, in the United States, there seems to be more of, um, um, a willingness to challenge the status quo and to, and to challenge what is told to you by a medical staff member. Um, I know that's the case because I used to live over there and it's totally different to the way people work over here in the Pacific, in, in Australian region, where a lot mm-hmm. of patients and people just feel like, well, I can't challenge, I can't say anything, I can't even get a second opinion because I just think that this guy must know what he's talking about. And sometimes, um, you know, doctors are human beings, they don't know everything, you know what I mean? I, I don't know where it came from where we, we think, or some of us think that a doctor knows absolutely everything and we have to trust exactly what they're saying. Um, you know, we should really, all of us get a second opinion, at least a second opinion when it comes to something very serious, you know. Um, of course. There's nothing wrong with that and often it doesn't cost much to do that. So just like when you take your car in to be serviced, you know, if there's a big repair job, you usually get one or two quotes. We should really treat our bodies the same way, I think. We should really talk to, you know, as many medical staff as we feel comfortable doing. And then again, with communication and other patients, I often find that a lot of patients have difficulty communicating with their families and their friends um, around, say, they've got a cancer diagnosis and they've got 50 friends to talk to, you know, that they get all sorts of um, advice from people, particularly in regards to complementary or alternative medicines. And often they don't know what to say. They don't know whether it's appropriate to reject that advice and whether it's, you know, there's, there's a whole heap of things that happen to you when you become say a cancer patient. Um, and it's really, it's really, it's like a quagmire of 
a brand new world opens up in front of you and, and all of a sudden you have to think, well, is it appropriate to say this? Is it appropriate to say that? And so as a consumer health advocate, I try to lead other patients through what I've been through and give them some advice and give them some guidance and help wherever they need it. That's probably something in the States that we could learn from uh, learn from you to do more often. I know you mentioned that in the States it does. You know, you've probably seen it here, but mm. I don't know how much I've seen it necessarily myself, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily, uh, maybe it's just I'm, I've been ignorant of, <laughs> of that. But it reminds me of being like a civil servant in, in a way, you know, yes. Yes. of, uh, of be having a civic duty to yes. your fellow mankind. Yes. So I want to, I want to find out um, before everything started yeah. happening. I know because there, there are just a, a lot of things. Uh, of course, I was looking over your website. Yeah, it's a bit complicated. <laughs> yeah. So if, if you could, I'm just, I'm willing to, and I would, I think the listeners are too. Mm. Uh, we're willing to sit back and have you maybe take us on your mm. journey so that we yeah. can kind of just try to envision how we would feel because that's what yeah. it really comes down to we we, we want to know exactly how you what you went through and how yeah. maybe we would react or how you know if something like this happens to us or is happening to a family member yeah how we can react in the future yeah so no. i'll make it as simple as i can because uh you know like i said before um a lot of people don't understand medical speak and i don't want to confuse anyone so it's important that I'm, I keep it simple. So, um, yeah, I was uh, basically my husband and I got married in Australia. He's from San Francisco and um, we we lived in the Bay Area for four years, which was lots of fun. Then we had a baby and uh, baby was, um, of course, born in the United States, but um, she had Australian citizenship and we decided, like, we just felt that, Australia was a better place to raise our kids and we decided it was a place that we wanted to go and we decided to, to go back to Australia. So we had 16 boxes and a baby <laughs> and we um, went back to um, Brisbane, Australia, which is where we are from and uh, to live closer to my parents. And, um, you know, everything was great. We bought our first house here when housing prices were really low at the time and, um, decided you know to have the white picket fence and the big house in the backyard and there were gum trees in the backyard no koalas but gum trees <laughs> um oh, oh, nice. and um you know but it was a it was a a very bushy sort of rural rural sort of um suburb um and you know not far away you could find kangaroos and everything so you know where i live there's quite a bit of wildlife and nature and things that americans see on television quite a lot and um, oh, yeah. my husband really loves Australia. He 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 wants to stay here permanently. And um, you know everything was going really well. And we had baby number two. And uh, this is two daughters that we've had. And and everything was fine uh, until one day my husband and the decided to take the kids back to the United States just so they could see the relatives they hadn't um met the the two baby well they'd met the first baby but um she'd grown up by that time and um while they were away um actually felt it was the best time to wean my second child who's her name is Anna and my first child was Julia uh and they're now 14 and 17 so that's quite a while away but um 
Yeah, so it was it was the perfect time to wean my second child because I'd been breastfeeding her and it was um, about that time that when you're breastfeeding, you actually have to sort of wean yourself out of the breast milk. And so I was feeling around my body and I found a lump on the side of my right breast. And I'm thinking, okay, my husband's away. The kids are away. What do I do? I won't see them for another right. month. Should I say anything? Should I um, go to the doctor? I started to think maybe I had breast cancer and actually... Um, went to a doctor and went to another doctor, actually two doctors at the time and had it checked out. And I was told it was just a, an enlarged lymph node on the right side of the right breast, almost underneath my right arm, armpit. And I thought to myself, well, you know, they were very, the, the first doctor was very relaxed about it. I wasn't relaxed at all. I wanted to know why this lymph node was so big and enlarged and what was causing it. And the second doctor sent me to a breast clinic and the breast clinic did a, uh, what's called a fine needle aspirate. And that's where they take a little tiny um, sample of liquid out of the lymph node. They have a look underneath the microscope and they just check it to see if there's anything funny going on. And mm. um, there wasn't at the time, but they recommended back to the, um, GP that I was seeing, which stands for general practitioner. In America, you call it a, a um, primary care physician. And um, he was still very relaxed about it. And um, I wasn't happy with his attitude towards the fact that I was worried and he wasn't. And um, I decided, well, you know, it's, it's time to maybe get some more opinions. So I went on this journey of trying to find out why this lymph node was enlarged and I started to get different symptoms around my body. I started to feel very tired, very lethargic. And I was working full time at the time. I was going into the downtown area of Brisbane every day and I had the two kids and full-time job. And I guess any mother would be tired if you're working full time and you've got the two little ones. And so I just put it down to being just a rundown mum, maybe. Maybe I needed more sleep. Um, and I started to get night sweats, which at the time I didn't even know were night sweats. I just thought I was hotter than my husband at night time. Um, sure, I'd never know. encountered a night sweat before, so I didn't really know what it was. And um, mm -hmm. I was starting to get pain also down the right-hand side of my body, and I just figured that I'd pulled a muscle so all these little things were starting to happen and it, they happened over a period of 11 months. And during that time, I was seeing doctors. I wasn't just seeing the primary care physician I was seeing at first. I was starting to ask other people, why are all these things happening to my body? Um, I think there's something wrong. I don't feel right. And each doctor one by one told me, no, you're fine. You're young. You know, you you're okay, you don't have to worry about anything. And by this time, I'd, I hadn't, I'd uh, decided not to go back to my initial primary care physician. I didn't like him anymore. He was um, very aloof and not very, um, he just didn't care really is what I thought he, he was like. And I just didn't really want to go back to him. So um, sure. I got to the point where, I had so many issues in my body. I went to a, a ladies camp for my church and I um, 
a couple of the ladies said, oh, you know, don't worry about the, the doctors. You need to see a chiropractor and you need to go to a naturopath. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I started seeing alternative physicians or alternative um, complementary medicine type people. And they told me a whole heap of stuff that it was my spine and it was um, my liver was out of whack and there was other things going on. And I just believed whatever anyone told me because I was desperate, really. I was getting to the point where I was in so much pain, I could hardly sleep anymore. And this one day I went to the bathroom and I couldn't feel any sensation of going to the bathroom. It felt like I was just numb in that area. And that really freaked me out. And I thought, okay, I need to do something about this. No one's listening to me and I'm in so much pain. So I said to my husband, if I still have this problem tomorrow, you need to take me to the emergency department because I just don't know what to do anymore. And he was starting to wonder if I was maybe making it all up. Um, My parents were starting to say, oh, you're just worried about nothing. I think they all thought I was a bit of a hypochondriac and It was very frustrating for me to try and think, well, no one believes me. No one thinks I'm actually sick. I think I am. I remember sitting actually at my work desk and saying, well, I'm actually in the city, so I must be close to an ambulance. If I fall down and have a, you know, freak out or if I fall down and faint, at least I'm near a hospital, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I was feeling. I was feeling like people weren't listening to me. And so I, the next day I still had this issue. I couldn't feel anything when I went to the bathroom. So I said to my husband, there's something very wrong with my body. And he took me there. We sat for four hours and waited for a doctor to come and see us. Finally, we oh, saw wow. a junior ER physician and he said to me, uh, look, there's some really strange things going on with your back and with this pain and all your symptoms. So we're going to get a senior ER doctor to just check you over and and just double check, see what we can find out. So this guy comes in and he says, look, we're going to do a CT just in case. We think maybe you might have hurt your back, you might have fallen down, you know. And I couldn't remember falling down. I couldn't remember doing anything, any kind of damage um, and decided, okay, we'll do a CT. So they did a CT and he came back. And I'll kid you not, his face was white as a ghost. And he came oh, in and he boy. looked at me and he said, um, have you ever had cancer in your family? And I'm like, well, what is he asking me this question for? You've got to be joking, you know. And I'm, I I'd never even thought of cancer that that could possibly be a, an, an issue for me. I was only 35. And, of course, everyone had told me I was healthy and beautiful looking and there's no way I could have cancer and I look fine. And I was working full time and I had two little kids. So how could I possibly have cancer? So yeah, he came back and he said, look, we found something really strange in your back and we're going to have to keep you overnight for testing. And I'm like, okay, so what do I do now? Do I tell my work that I'm not going to come back and you know, what's going on? So They put me in a ward where they put people that they're investigating from the ER. And we decided to go through the testing that they wanted us to go through. And it actually took three days. We we went through scan after scan after scan. 
And eventually this Asian woman doctor came to me and I remember everything about it. And I remember that she was an Asian doctor. She was a, a lovely woman. And she came up to me and she said, look, I've been chosen to tell you what's going on. And I'm like, okay, why, why is she talking like this? <laughs> she said, it was yeah, almost right. as if she had pulled the short straw and there was a group of doctors standing over next to a, a nurse's station and uh, they'd obviously chosen her to tell, tell me the news. And she said, we think you have tumours in your back and all through the right-hand side of your body. We don't know what you're fighting. We have no idea what the disease is, but we think you might have cancer. And that was the beginning of a huge, huge journey that I've been on. And you can just imagine the shock of hearing those words with my husband next to me, knowing that I had a two-year-old at home and, well, she was almost three at that stage, and a five-year-old and a full-time job and a mortgage and a house. And um, I was just... What went through your mind at that time? I, I, I remember I, I was just numb, you know, and you hear that from people who've heard shocking news before they feel numb first of all I did feel some relief because someone actually believed what I was saying and and to be told that you're uh that there's nothing wrong with you for 12 almost 12 months and then to have someone actually believe you is a bit of a relief but also you feel absolutely in shock because of my age and also because um when you get cancer, there's no big red light that goes off, says you've got cancer, you know, no big flashing warning <laughs> right. light to say that you've got cancer. You just obviously think that it's something else you've done and you always think it's never going to be you. You always think it's going to be someone else, you know. And so I can't really recall the words that went through my head, my head, but I was just numb and at the same time I was, I had a bit of relief about the fact that someone knew what was occurring with me. And um, I, I remember I was in shock. So I, I grabbed her shirt. <laughs> I don't know why I did this. I grabbed her shirt <laughs> at the front and I said to her, please, 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 please tell those doctors over at the nurse's station that were looking at me. I said, please tell them to do everything they can for me because I have two little girls at home. I need to live for my girls you know, and yeah, yeah I just um, went into survival mode, really. Um, I knew that I had probably had cancer for a long time. I was diagnosed with a low-grade follicular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And for those who don't know what lymphoma is, it's, it's a cancer of the lymphatic system. It's often caused by exposure to environmental toxins and also... Um, viruses so what they found with me and they wondered why at 35 I, I contracted this disease because often it's it's classed as an old person's disease and uh, what they'd found with me is that I had glandular fever when I was younger and I had no idea I'd had this but they found that antibody in my blood I'd also had a virus called Epstein-Barr virus which is responsible for um, what they call chronic fatigue syndrome. A lot of people get that. And um, the virus is usually um, carried by about 90% of the population. And some people, it makes them very, very sick. 
uh, like the chronic fatigue syndrome. And I've had both those viruses and in combination, they're known to cause lymphoma um, over a long period of time. And so they think that my body was exposed to those two viruses. And as a result, a malignancy in my lymphatic system started. And I could have had it for many, many years. So they told me that I had a low grade and I'm saying, wow, low grade, that's good. That's good, right? That that means it's non-aggressive. And they said, well, that's true, but they said the aggressive lymphomas can often be cured very quickly and we can eradicate them and they're gone from your system and you're cured and you can get on with life. But the low-grade lymphomas always, always, always come back. So when you hear that and you're a young person, you're thinking, oh, come on, you know, I have my chemo, I have my radiation or whatever I need and I can get back on track with my life. But um, they said to me, basically, you're going to probably live for about 20 years um, unless there's a cure that comes up between now and then. And, um, you know, you'll get your chemo and relapse again and you'll get more chemo and then you'll relapse again. And so hearing all of this, even at the beginning, was was crazy. I'm, I'm like, you've got to be joking, you know. Um, there must be another way around this. Well, I just had to try and digest all of that and... Um, Obviously, by that time, my, my brain was spinning and I felt depressed and I felt very anxious about my future and the future of my family. But I had to do my chemo and I had to do radiotherapy. In fact, I had to do emergency radiotherapy because the I had tumors all the way down my right-hand side of my body from my from the original lump that I had underneath my right breast all the way down to my lower right back. And I had tumors wrapped around what's called the S1 nerve. And that's a nerve that carries a signal from your brain right down to your right leg and right down to your, your, your right foot. And I really um, had malignancy everywhere. So we tried a certain kind of chemo at first, a, a very um, low toxic chemo, if you could call it that. And it didn't work. The, the cancer did not respond. So we had to try a, a more toxic chemotherapy. Um, the, the lymphoma did respond, but I needed to do at least six rounds of that. So I did that. My hair fell out, which was a huge shock to a young 30-something girl or woman. And um, sometimes what the chemo does to your body is more shocking than what the actual cancer does to your body. Um, and looking in the mirror and finding yourself bald is sort of an outward appearance or an outward sign that you're not very well when you actually look fine. Um, so I, I went through all my chemo. I went through emergency radiotherapy because my right leg was being threatened by these tumors that were wrapped around my S1 nerve. They were also pushing into my sacrum, which is a small bone at the base of your spine. And uh, they were eating into the bone. Um, there was nerves and muscles that were being eaten into by tumors. So I had quite a profuse stage four, which is the last stage of most cancers, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, we just had to do what we could to save my life and to save my right leg. I wanted to try and get back into normal life. And most people who are going through cancer just want to have a normal life again they just don't really want to be pitied or or have to stay off work or whatever 
So I was determined to get back to work and I did go back to work. I had some issues with my right leg. It, was a, it wasn't quite as comfortable as it used to be, but um, I was still able to walk around and do a lot of things, a lot of functions at home and work. And um, it was after about eight months that I started to get problems with my right toes. They weren't working the way they used to. I was getting numbness and pain down my right leg. And I decided to tell my hematologist, who was my main specialist at the time, I said, I think there's something going on. It's not quite the same as what it used to be. And um, it took us a long time, but we finally found some kind of um, tumor activity uh, that was coming back um, around that S1 nerve. And I had to unfortunately leave work at that time. Um, I decided that if it did come back, that it was no use me trying to keep working when I was fighting something else. I needed to really just concentrate on that journey and try and get through it. And so I went back into hospital, started chemotherapy again. And this time they had to decide, do we give her what's called a bone marrow transplant and try and um, give her a new blood system, which is what I really needed, or do we just give her a very strong chemotherapy and see if we can just get rid of it with the chemo? And they decided just to use the chemo. And this particular drug they gave me called fludarabine, it was, it was a very, very strong drug. It was one of the strongest chemos they could give me. And um, it made me very, very sick. I lost my hair once again. And, um, you know, by this time I was like just, you know, like nothing shocked me anymore. I'd been through a lot. And, um, yeah, so I had my, my second encounter with the cancer and we got rid of it. And for four years, everything was okie-dokie, wonderful. I wasn't able to work. I was really tired after that point, fighting for my life twice, as you could imagine. Um, and I just felt like I needed to have a break and stay at home and just look after the family and, and relax after everything I'd been through. And um yeah, I was, I was at home one day doing the vacuuming and I sat down and I felt this, um, it, it was a familiar pain. It felt like bone pain, like a throbbing pain uh, in my hips and in my thigh, in my thigh bone. Um, and it was similar to a pain I'd felt in my shoulder area back when I had my first cancer. It felt like a throbbing pain that I couldn't get rid of. And instead of worrying about it too much I thought well let me just wait and see if this is going to come back or if this is just me making it up you know I, want, I wanted to be absolutely sure before I went to my specialist my hematologist I wanted to make sure that I wasn't pretending or thinking that it was something that it wasn't you know what I mean so I um I left it for a week and then I went to my hematologist and I had my regular blood test and she said to me your bloods have dipped, you know, your, your white blood cells and your red blood cells and everything has dipped overnight almost. And um, I said, that's funny because I've had some pain in my hip and in my thigh bone. And well, she, she just, her face again, like the first um, ER surgeon went white as a ghost. And she said, we need to do a bone marrow aspirate, which is what I'd had many times. And that's where they, they stick a large needle through your hip and they suck out some bone marrow. They look at it underneath the microscope 
and then they go, okay, she's got cancer or she's got something else and they can see it floating around inside the bone marrow. So um, we had that and then she came to me and she said, look, I, I have something surprising to tell you. She said, you actually don't have lymphoma at this time. You have a second kind of cancer. And I'm like, you've got to be joking. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I had not... I had I had lymphoma still. It wasn't active at the time, but I had a second kind of cancer called myelodysplasia, um, and it was caused, according to her, and we'd found out through uh, the type of cancer, the type of myelodysplasia it was. We'd found out that it was caused by the chemo I had I for the lymphoma. If that, was that, if that was it. Yes. And then people say that, you know, can, that chemo can cause cancer. It can in very rare circumstances. So not only had I had a rare form of lymphoma at my age, but I'd had a rare reaction to the chemo from the second. It was actually from the second lot of wow. chemo what, I'd had. What were you thinking about life at that point in time? Were you like, what What did I do wrong? <laughs> what is going what on? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, I like I'm a very positive person. So, but I had to. There was nothing I could do about it. I mean, I wasn't. Um, it wasn't like I w I could control it, you know. And I had to think of like, I'm I'm a faithful person too. So I thought, well, I've got to use this somehow to help other people, or, or you know, I'd seen a lot of things happen, particularly through the medical negligence thing I'd been through, and. Um, I'd actually taken that all the way to our, our state medical board and the, the gentleman who was the GP that was supposed to be looking after me at the time, the, the primary care physician, he got in trouble um, for, you know, um, misdiagnosing me or giving me what was called a de delayed diagnosis. He didn't really diagnose me at all. He just caused a lot of the problems um, because he kept telling me there was nothing wrong with me. So... Um, he got in trouble for that. But, you know, I, at, by the time I had this third cancer, I'm like, well, you know, can you guys help me with it? They said the only way we can get rid of it is by a bone marrow transplant and it wouldn't be using your own stem cells, which is often what they do. They'll take your stem cells out of your body through your blood and they'll clean it up and then they'll re-inject them in and give you a new um, sort of a new new bone marrow, new blood system through your own stem cells, which is incredible how they do all this medical technology. It's amazing. Um, but they said, you're going to need donor stem cells or donor bone marrow because um, your bone marrow is now failing and it's not working properly. So um, we checked my sister. My sister wasn't a match. Um, and we really needed to then go on to the international bone marrow registry and there is one um when you give blood at the blood bank you often have um the ability to say look i'd like to give stem cells or bone marrow and they register you and then you can give bone marrow or stem cells to someone if you're matched with them and they need it anywhere in the world so uh by that point i'm like really fighting for my life i had to have blood transfusions regularly because my bone marrow wasn't making the right type of blood. It wasn't making really much blood at all. It was making blood, but it was an awful quality. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I had to, you know, without a bone marrow transplant, I would have died. 
So we actually found, and the funny thing is we found a match in the United States, which was unusual because, you know, they, they look all over the world. They look in Australia and New Zealand first for me because that's where I was located. Right. And uh, we found a 30-year-old male in the United States. That's all I know about him. I'm not allowed to know anything else. It's very private, the whole process. Um, and... Um, his bone marrow was then harvested from him and he was very kind in uh, going through all sorts of needles and procedures and going to the hospital just for me. He didn't know who I was and I didn't know who he was, but he did it to save my life, which is just incredible. Um, I don't know where he was situated in the United States. All I know is that he was, he was my savior. So his bone marrow was harvested from him and it was sent on a plane with a scientist all the way from the United States to Australia, and it was it just made it in time uh, to match my chemo regime. So I had to have seven days of more chemotherapy, and then that um, sort of actually basically killed off my old bone marrow that I was born with, and his bone marrow was then injected into my bloodstream. And uh, from that point on, I um, started to well his his bone marrow started to produce new blood for me. And um, the funny thing is now I have his DNA in my bone marrow um, and my blood type changed to his blood type. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> which is Did that just affect you at all? Incredible yeah. because... Like even mentally, does that affect you? It doesn't affect me. People often say um, when you have a bone marrow transplant, you take on the, the familiar details of your donor. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even heard some people say that it changes your eye color and your hair color, which doesn't happen. You know, uh, the only thing I noticed was that prior to having my bone marrow transplant with this gentleman's bone marrow, I, um, didn't really like the, the flavor of strawberries, but afterwards all I wanted was strawberries. Interesting. <laughs> so I wondered if maybe, and I wrote to him hoping he would write back. He never did write back because it has to go through several hospitals. So I, I wasn't sure if he ever got it, but I wanted to thank him. And I actually said to him in the card that I sent to him, I said, I'm not sure if you like strawberries, but for some reason I have like this um, insatiable, uh, appetite for strawberries now so um, maybe he he loves strawberries I don't know but I did get his his blood type so it's funny your bone marrow of course produces your blood and um, I had an O positive blood type when we started and then I went to an A positive blood type so I now have his DNA and his blood type floating around in me, which means I'm part American and part Australian. <laughs> and you love strawberries. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you gotta <laughs> you got to see some positive in it, haven't you? I mean, now um, yeah. it's been three years since I had my bone marrow transplant and um, I take 50 pills a day to keep me healthy. Um, we have to do that because just like with a heart transplant or um, um, any kind of organ transplant, there's a there's a problem with rejection sometimes. Um, his bone marrow was a match for me, but it wasn't a perfect match. So um, we have to make sure that my immune system is suppressed a little bit so that 
we don't have an all-out war between his DNA and my my DNA. So uh, that's why I have to take so many pills a day and there's other things that I have to deal with. But the main thing is that I'm alive and, um, and you know, I have a lot of other issues with my right leg and everything else. But, you know, I just have to see the positive and everything and that's the way, you know, I've raised my kids to see, you know, okay, I've fought cancer three times. I've had a bone marrow transplant. I've, um, you know, dealt with rejection disease. I've dealt with medical negligence. Um, and just actually on Friday, I was told I, I'm, I'll probably have to have a hip replacement, believe it or not, because I had um, a lot of steroids when we went through the bone marrow transplant. And just five days of high steroid um, usage has caused a little bit of disease inside my bones, um, particularly where my hip is my right hip and so they say that's part sometimes uh, a late complication of bone marrow transplants and they say I'll probably have to have that hip replaced which is was a shock um another challenge that I'll have to go through but hey you know um the thing is like I'm here for my husband I'm here for my kids I'm alive and I'm using my story to help people along their own journey so that's currently where I am in the simplified terms. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and how has this, this whole journey of yours affected your outlook on life and your ultimate just passion for life? Can you give us a picture of how mm. it looked before this journey and now where you're at and after, uh, well, and still yeah. in this journey, you know? But yeah, can you give us a little bit of a description? Of course, when, yeah, so like, you know, before I, I do remember, like, before cancer, and this was 10 years ago, you know, you sort of take life for granted. You don't really, you don't really think about the fact that you could die suddenly or something could happen to you. And you often sort of think to yourself, you know, um, life's cruisy, life's good, white picket fence, everything's going really well, you know. And you sort of take for granted your health and your your the fact that you're young and you have, you know, healthy kids or whatever. But when something happens to you, then you really start to embrace what's good about life and what you enjoy. And I remember going back to work the first time and watching people, uh, they were jaywalking in the city. And I was watching people walk across a red jaywalk sign and I thought to myself why are these people doing this why are they risking their lives you know when I'd been through so much to fight for my own life and these people were risking their own by you know jutting out in front of cars and everything else and I just thought I wish I could just grab them and tell them to to really think about their life and stop you know and stop sort of risking it <laughs> because I'd fought so hard for my life I remember thinking that and I also remember uh, you know going through these whole all of these chemo processes and in hospital looking out over the city and thinking you know the world's just going by and I'm just really fighting for my life here and I'm really finding it very hard but you know as long as I am alive that's the main thing as long as I'm taking a breath and I'm alive and I can enjoy my kids and my husband, um, then I'm successful in beating this thing. So it really was taking life for granted 
beforehand, but now feeling like life is so precious, you know, mm. everything's so precious. I remember coming out of my bone marrow transplant and I'd been in, in the ward for probably two and a half months and I'd hardly gone outside. I was just exhausted from the whole process. I'd had to go on a special machine where they fed me every day because I couldn't get food down my throat. My throat was totally swollen from the transplant. My mouth was full of sores. I couldn't eat anything. And, you know, because of the rejection process of the, um, of the bone marrow transplant. And I remember going to my parents' house. I had to stay with them for about three months and I had to be watched very carefully because the doctor said to me, we will not proceed with transplant unless you have a carer for at least three months to watch you full time. So my parents had to do that for me. I remember going to their house and looking outside and seeing the birds and the trees and thinking, oh, you know, these things are so beautiful and so precious and I never noticed them before. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens when you go through a really difficult circumstance. You start to see the good things about life and how much you treasure them. Even when things are hard, you start to realize how beautiful life is and how precious everything is. That's, that's really what it feels like. I just have a couple more Absolutely. questions for you then, uh, yeah. Jody. And oh, before I go to those questions, though, let's give a quick shout out to your website. It is uh, jodysjourney.com, okay. right? And it's... Yes, uh, spelled J-O-D-I-E, yeah. And um, look, it's, it's, it's a resource that's there for not just um, patients, but medical staff to um, anyone who wants to read my journey. And I've just finished my full manuscript of my full story. And um, I'm now looking for a literary agent. So I'm hoping that sooner or later, I'll be able to get that published. Um, and that's the next project that I've got my head around at the moment. Um, and so, yeah, that, that resource is there. If anyone wants to contact me and talk to me about their situation, I do talk to a lot of people. I'm happy to talk to patients. Um, so that's jodysjourney.com. Excellent. Yeah. And I want to, I want to ask you something then, and this is, uh, I just have a couple more questions, like I said, but I want to ask you, uh -huh. can you elaborate on some of the experiences that you had during that time when it was at its worst? So like, um, I remember specific times when I was in the ward and I was in extreme pain. Actually, this was when I first had a lot of tumors in my body and I didn't know that there was drugs I could ask for that would relieve my pain. I'd never even tried morphine. I didn't know anything about it. I had paracetamol a few times, but that was about it. And, um, you know, I was having to use a hot water bottle to keep the pain off my back. I had I had to do something because the pain was excruciating. I remember looking out over the city at night and I would see these planes flying through the nighttime to the local airport. And I used to work, like I said, in airlines in the United States and here in Australia and with Boeing and and the the whole miracle of flight and seeing these planes go across, I thought, well, you know, if a plane can take off and fly through the sky, then maybe there's hope for me, you know? And over the city, there was a hill just in front of me and there was a church right on top of the hill. 
And I found out later it was a Catholic church and it used to house um, Polish immigrants in the First World War. Um, I only found that out by looking it up and it had a big blue cross on the top of the building. And at the time I just looked across and I thought, well, you know, I had a deep faith and I said to myself, well, God, if you're really there and, you know, you're reminding me that you're there with this cross, then I know somehow, some way that this, that there must be some purpose behind this. There's got to be a purpose, you know, you brought me to this earth for some reason and, you know, there must be something that I have to do with this, you know, and that was probably my lowest time. And I remember crying and crying and crying and I was probably very depressed, but I kept saying to myself, I can deal with this. I'm, I'm really strong. I'm a soldier, you know, I can battle it through. I probably needed some medication to really just calm me down. And at the time, yeah, I, I felt like I was, uh, well, I, I knew I was depressed after the fact. And, um, it was a it was a very difficult time, but it was looking out over the city and seeing that cross on the top of the building. I knew there was hope. I knew there was hope for me. I knew that if other people could battle it, um, that someone was there for me to, you know, my foundation was faith. So I just knew that I had to keep going. That was probably the lowest point for me, you know, mm-hmm. going and, and seeing people going about their business down below the hospital, I just felt like a nothingness, you know, that my whole life had just been ripped apart. I'd had a great job, the best job I'd ever had in my life. Um, My two little girls, a great marriage, a house, a mortgage, everything else. A mortgage is not great, but I still had a house. (laughs) And yes, no one likes a mortgage, do they? (laughs) And so, um, yeah, I just... You know, I think that cross gave me some help, some hope because I just felt like God hadn't given up on me. So that was important for me. It's different for everyone. You know, other people have a different foundation, but for me, that was my foundation and that was important for me. Just, it's nice to hear that even despite everything that's going on, that, yeah, there yeah. are still those moments where it's, you know, you're, there you're are. going to be okay. And And, you know, like, it's so important to have a foundation in life. You know, like I said, everyone has a different foundation. Some people it's their family, some people it's their faith, some people it's, you know, a group of friends or whatever. But I I think if you find a foundation that is immovable, you know, some foundations are built on sand, some foundations are built on stone and rock. And I think I found my foundation that was built on a rock and I felt like, it was immovable for me. So whatever happened to me, I knew that my family would somehow be taken care of, that, you know, um, God might provide for them. And I just believe that in faith. And so... That's something that uh, I guess everyone... It's it's just interesting to think about, you know, how we all do just... Yeah. Whether we realize it or not, we do have yeah. certain foundations and they all differ. And uh, it's, it's really yeah. good to think about that. I do have, I have one last question here. I want you to yes. pretend like that you and your family are visiting Sydney and you're strolling through yes. the botanical garden. And then of course you stumble upon that beautiful opera house and it's, it's grandeur, yes. it's beautiful. But then all of a sudden for you, for some reason, everything freezes. Yeah. 
your family that you're with, they freeze in time, everyone around you, yeah. everything freezes. And out of the opera house yeah. comes a person. Well, you think it's a person, but you actually find out that it's an alien life form. And they are, they've come to okay. Sydney, but he tells you yeah. he's a journalist <laughs> and he's trying to figure out how, you know, things operate on various planets and whatnot. He only has five minutes though. Okay. And he's chosen you. He wants yeah. to find out how you see and understand life on this planet. So what would you tell this alien right. who looks just like that actor, Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> what would I tell him about life on Earth? Well, being a positive person, first of all, I would ask him, why did you choose me? <laughs> you know, why do you want to talk to me? I mean, surely you could um, talk to the president or maybe someone more important or, you know, whatever. But um, maybe he would say that, you know, you know what? he doesn't tell, care I... about those things. They it, On their planet, the celebrity thing, it's not even in existence. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So I would. Being the positive person that I am, and I always come from that point of view. I mean, some people would, you know, who'd been through the same thing I'd been through, and probably we're talking about post-cancer, I would assume. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, would, I would tell him that there are great opportunities here on Earth to make an impact on, on, on your greater mission. So I think everyone on earth has a mission, some kind of mission built into their bodies, their souls, their spirits, you know, and there's something good for us to do on earth. And I think that's the reason why many of us are brought here on earth some way, somehow there's something for us to do. And there's a great opportunity for us to make a mark and to do something good with anything that's happened in our lives, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing. And so I would tell him um, that being here on earth is something that I enjoy, something I love, something I, I want to remember forever, wherever my spirit may go past, um, past this life. And I, I, I believe that that's heaven so for me. So I would tell him, you know, opportunity is everywhere here on earth. And you have to grab it and grasp it and do something really good with what's happened to you. So that's kind of what I would say to him. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I hope that's enough. For him. <laughs> He's like, well, thank you. Yeah. I, uh, every single time I ask that question or in its various forms, uh, I get a different answer and yeah. I love, and once again, a unique answer. And Jody, thank you so much. Well, well, you have a excellent, an excellent rest of your day then. Thank you. You have a great day too. Thanks for, right. for talking to me. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for checking out this episode of In the Shoes Of. If you like or don't like the podcast, feel free to leave a review or reach out to me. My email is jnickel42 at gmail.com. I can't promise you I'll get back to you right away but I'll definitely try and get to it. Anyway, thank you so much for checking it out. Until the next time, see you later.